Last week, you talked about uh, maybe sometimes struggling with the question of whether or not God loves you, God loves me, whether or not He loves us all the time. And uh, logically, you, when you look in the Bible and you read it and you see all the messages of I love you, I love you, I love you, over and over again, logically, we shouldn't ask that question at all, really. God loves us. Amen. We should know He loves us. Sometimes... Like I said last week, sometimes it doesn't feel like he loves us. Sometimes I, I wonder. But when you really read it, yeah, he loves me. Amen. The opposite side of that coin might be what Frank told me last week as, as we were talking outside. And I had the same thought, too. Frank said, I don't really wonder if God loves me. Sometimes I wonder if I love God enough. That's, yeah, that's on us. And that's where it probably should be. Because God's going to love us. And His love is, like Bill was saying to me this morning, so amazing. Why does He love me? There's no reason He should love me. Is there a good reason He should love you? Can you think of one? You're not good enough for Him to love you, are you? Everybody's awfully quiet now. You can't think of one? You're His. Okay, but do you, des- I mean, what, what do we do to deserve His love? I don't, I don't really deserve his love. I might be his child, but I have, I have disobeyed. I've been disobedient. I've thumbed my nose at him. I don't deserve his love, but he loves me anyway. Because he, because I am his child. He's going to love me anyway. But do I love him enough? I can worry about that. And part of the worrying we're going to look at this morning, I think, stems from the fact that maybe we just don't love him enough. Go to Psalm 46. I want to start off there and look at a little Old Testament worry and then try from John to look at a little New Testament worry. Because I think it all has a similar underpinning, no matter which side of the the Bible you come from, and probably same for you and me. Psalm 46 here is a psalm where they're asking for some help from God. The first six verses, they're saying, God, we need your help. We're in some danger here. We're going to be in some danger. We need you to be here with us and and take care of us. One through six, let me read that. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And because of that, what? Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, Though the mountains quake as its swelling pride, at its swelling pride. So all of this, this huge language here for, I think, more than just you know, the mountains slipping. You're talking about if, if nations are coming at us, if we're, we're outnumbered, no matter who's coming at us, if, if we've got God on our side, He can take care of it. Amen. You see that in Joshua. You see that in the book of Numbers. You see that with David. You see, you see throughout the Old Testament all the time. They, they could be outnumbered on all sides, but what happens? God takes care of it. He will take care of it. He'll go in there and He'll wipe out the enemy for you. While you're sleeping, He'll take them out. Or He'll cause confusion and they'll all run away. You see that over and over again in there. Verse 4, There is a river whose streams make, it, make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The answer to worry here for the people here 
And for the psalmist here is to say, God, you've, you've got this. I can't do this. I need you. You are my refuge. You are my strength. When I'm in trouble, I need you. And over and over again, you probably see that in the, in the Old Testament too, where they forget they needed God and they go to other nations to, help, to get help. And what happens? It doesn't work out so well for them, does it? Or they, or they worship idols. They cast their, their, their worries and their, their, their need for hope, their need for whatever it is, on idols, and that doesn't work out well for them either. God is their refuge. God is their strength. And if they remember that, they're okay. Again, it's not God's love for them that's waning here. It's our remembering, I need to love God the way I should. I need to love God because He loves me. Verses 7 through, um, well, no, let's go 8, 7 through 9. 7 through 9. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in this earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. The, the, here's your answer about when, when the old, in the Old Testament at least, here when they're trying to figure out who's going to save us. Or where should we put our hope? Where should we put our trust? The answer is in 7 through, eight, uh, seven through 9. You simply need to remember who God is and what He does and what He's done. And when you remember who He is, what He's done, and what He does, then putting your hope and your trust in Him shouldn't be a problem because He can take care of all of these things. He can make those wars to cease. He can cause your enemy to flee in front of you without doing a single thing. He can fall those walls of AI. He can do all of those things if you remember who He is. And the psalmist, I think, is saying, we need to remember who He is here. If we're calling for His help, let's remember who He is. Because if we know who He is, we know what He can do. Which leads you to 10 and 11. So cease striving and what? What does it say there in your text? Cease striving and know that I am God. Know that I am God. Figure out, just, just know who I am. I've already told you I'll be with you. I've already told you I'll take care of you. So quit trying to do it yourself. And put your hope and your trust in me. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. First things first, you ask God to come and help you. You remember who he is. And you say, yeah, I need to cease my striving here. I need to stop trying to do it myself. I need to stop asking Egypt or any other place for help and say, God, you're our help. You're our help and I need you right now. See, sometimes I think, I feel like I'm let down by God. I feel like I'm not getting the answers I want. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm worrying about the answers I get. I'm waiting for them to come. The psalmist is saying, you don't have to worry about God. He's going to answer. He's going to take care of you. You need to cease striving and put your hope, your faith, your trust in Him. Just let your heart rest in Him because He's going to take care of you. Even like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I like what they say when they're telling the king, even if our God, what? Doesn't rescue us. We're okay even if our God doesn't rescue us. If we die in that fire, that's okay. But we're going to do what we know we should do because of who our God is. 
We're not going to bow our knees to that idol. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. And even if God doesn't rescue us, we're good. God's going to rescue us. Sometimes it's not the physical rescuing. And I think they were looking at it as if, you know, it may not be a physical rescuing. But what happens if we go to the Lord right now? Yeah, it's okay too. It's kind of like Paul, right? I, I don't know which one to choose. I'd like to be here and help you, but I'd like to go home too. But yeah, for your sake, I'd stay. But why? Paul says there's both good choices here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think they had the same choice. And they say, if we go, we go. If we don't, he's got more for us to do. And we'll do it. We'll put our hope, our faith, and our trust in him. And I see that in Psalm 46. And the reason I wanted to use that first is because when we're going to the New Testament here, looking at Jesus interacting with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, I see the, the descendants of, of these people here, again, having a hard time putting their hope, their faith, and their trust in the right thing. So go over to John chapter 8, and I'm, I'm going to look, not the whole chapter here. Um, I want to start I thought I had this mapped out before but now I'm thinking I should start earlier just because I'm going to start in verse 21 he's already been teaching he's already been in the temple teaching and, and caused some ruckus, as, as Jesus usually does. Everywhere he goes, there's, there's something happening. Pharisees have already been on him there and talking about him being a witness of himself earlier on there. In 21, he's going to continue his teaching, and we're going to look at concentrate on, on that through the end of the chapter. He said, therefore, again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and you shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus, therefore, said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, 
Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You were doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And I say that you do not know Him. I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him and, kept, and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, so let me try to connect worry and, and all of this together with Psalm 46 in here. And, and you may, it may be a stretch. It may just be my own machinations here that, that I'm, I'm, I'm reading Psalm 46 and then I was reading this later on in the week and I thought oh, there's, there's some similarity here between where they've come from and what they're, where they're putting their trust and their faith in. Jesus says several times in here, you don't know me and why don't you know, why don't they know Jesus? Anybody? Okay, they've been blinded by their own desires. And what does Jesus say? You don't know me because you, you don't know the Father. Right, you don't know the Father himself. If you knew the Father, you would know me. You don't know the Father himself. He says that quite a few times here. The reason the Pharisees don't know him is because they don't know the Father. They thought it was Jesus' problem when it's actually their problem. It's, it's their problem. Just like in, in, in the Old Testament, if, if we are not trusting in God... It's not God's problem. It's our problem. I'm not trusting Him enough. I'm, not, I'm worrying about my, my physical things too much. I'm worried about where I'm putting my hope and my faith and my trust in physical armies rather than God Himself in the Old Testament here. 
the Pharisees are worried about maybe their, their position, their, their, their position in society, the fact that they know that they're the right ones, that they have the right words, they have the right interpretation of the words, all these things, and that it's Jesus' problem, it's not our problem. They're not even worried about that. They, they, but they don't know the Father, so they don't know Jesus. And you see that in verses 27, 47, 55, and even 42, that Jesus says, You don't know me. If God were your Father, you would love me. In 42. But, but you don't know me. You don't know where to really put your faith, your hope, and your trust. You put it in other things other than the Father, and that's precluding you from seeing me. They don't know what they don't know. And Jesus points that out to them in no uncertain terms. That you don't know me because you don't know the Father. You worry about all these other things. You worry about your position at the table. You worry about being seen as a righteous man. You worry about dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And you miss the very heart of God. And you're going to miss me too. And I'm standing right in front of you. And you're still going to miss me. All of the miracles that Jesus did. And they still missed him. Who, who raises a man from the dead? And then people say, not only do we need to kill the man who raised the man from the dead, but we might need to take care of the man who got raised from the dead too, just to make sure that we're covering all our bases here. That's some, that, that's some twisted thinking. But when I think about it, do we do much different here in this world today? We don't have the opportunity to say, let's kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. But we can kill him in other ways. We can deny him just the same. We can put our worries on things outside and all over the place. He can even worry about our spiritual lives here so much that we miss the heart of Jesus and realize that it's not about dotting the I's and crossing the T's all the time. It's about being with the heart of God, with the heart of Jesus. Realizing that when I do make mistakes, yeah, I make mistakes all the time, but he still loves me. And I'm not going to just, I'm not cut off right away. I'm, I'm not just, boom, done. He says, I love you. The blood of my son is covering you. So they, they don't know Jesus because they don't know the Father. Just like in the Old Testament, if they miss the Father, if they're asking Assyria or Egypt or some other place for help, rather than coming to God himself, they don't know the Father and they're going to suffer the consequences of not understanding who the Father is. And just like the Pharisees here will suffer the consequences of not Understanding who Jesus is because you don't even know the Father who sent him. And as he gets through or he gets started going in, the, in this conversation, it's interesting that they say in verse 33, We've never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Now, I, I've, a lot of times I've, I've wondered if that was them saying they've never been enslaved physically. But I'm wondering here if there's a, a more spiritual application to this enslavement. We aren't enslaved to idols. We aren't enslaved to these gods of the Romans. We, we worship the Father. And they argue later on that that's our Father. We're from Abraham. I'm, I'm wondering if, if their, their thinking here is more spiritual slavery because Jesus says the truth will make you free. And they say, we don't need to be free. We are already free. We, we understand who the Father is. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand who the Father is. And you're not free. Because you don't understand who the Father really is. You haven't become free. 
And then that's why in verse 34, I think he follows it up with everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Here he's talking about spiritual slavery and spiritual freedom. And they're, they're wrestling with, we don't need spiritual freedom here. We are free already. But because they don't know the Father, they don't realize, you need to, you need to check yourself in your spiritual freedom here. You're not just uh, saved because you're a part of the chosen people. Down there in verse 39, he says, If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of the father. There's difference between descendants and children here. You could be a descendant of Abraham, just like Paul says in Romans. You know, not all Israel is Israel. Uh, if, If you're a descendant and you're counting on God to save you just because I came from Abraham's descendants, then you've got another thing coming. You need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand who the Father sent. You need to be a son indeed here, not just a son because I have a bloodline. This is a spirit. I think this might be more of a spiritual freedom than a physical slavery here. This is a spiritual slavery. And Jesus is trying to open up their eyes to spiritual things. And they're saying, we don't need that freedom. We already got it. And that's why Jesus says, you don't know the Father. You don't know what true spiritual freedom is. True spiritual freedom comes from Jesus himself, and they're missing it all over the place. We don't need to be freed from sin, but yes, yeah, you do. And that's why they go into personal attacks there. I think once they, they can't argue the, the case here, you go into personal attacks. I'm wondering if verse 41 is a bit of a personal attack. We're not born of fornication. That could be a personal attack against Jesus. Verse 48, another personal attack. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Personal attacks. You can't attack the message, so who do you attack? You attack the messenger. They can't, they can't fight the, the message. He's making some powerful arguments, and so we start to fight Jesus himself and say, no, you're, you're the problem here. You've always been the problem. You always will be the problem. We know what we're doing. And I think even today, we do the same thing. I do the same thing. I can't attack the message, so I attack the messenger. Personal, personal and, and I think spiritual. You see that all over the world. People attacking Jesus himself. Attacking him. Same thing. Slavery. Attacking Jesus. You don't know God because you don't know me. Speaking truth to worry here. Jesus is speaking truth to worry. I'm worried about my position in, in society. I'm worried about my, my uh, take on the scriptures. I'm worried that that I'm going to be told everything I, I, I'm doing is wrong. I need, I need to change everything. Worry can happen spiritually. Worry can happen physically. But I think it boils down to how much do I love God? How much am I willing to change? I think that's why in James chapter 1, when he talks about hearing the word. Uh, let me jump over there really quick so I make sure I say it right. <clears throat> After he, he talks about the, you know, the sin, the lust, and, and bringing forth death, and then every good thing in verse 17, every good and perfect gift come down from God, he starts to say, verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, be let, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In, in that case, I think, again, he's talking about spiritual reception here. Be willing to hear God's word. Be willing to take God's word. And that anger that comes from, I don't want to change, or I don't think I have to change, or I don't, I don't think you're right. That anger that, that, will, that will not achieve the righteousness of God. 
because I'm not allowing that word to implant into me, to, to become a part of me and to change me from the inside out. I'm not allowing it to hit my heart. Rather than that, I'm getting angry. Just like the Pharisees here, it's not hitting their heart. They're getting angry. They're getting upset. It's, it's a similar thing as, as Acts 2, where Peter is preaching and the hearts of those men were pierced. And what do the men do? When the hearts of the men are pierced in Acts 2, what, what's the question that they ask Peter? Yeah, what must we do to be saved? Then their hearts are pierced. I think in chapter 5, the hearts of the Pharisees and the rulers there are also cut to the quick. It's a similar similar uh, word there. And instead of saying, what will, miss, what will we do to be saved? They rush to, to take out Stephen. Is it Stephen? Maybe it's Stephen in 7. But it, it has a completely different reaction here because the heart is not ready to accept the message. And that anger here is not going to achieve the righteousness of God. This is the heart in Acts 2 that will achieve the righteousness of God. The one that says... What must I do to be saved? What do I need to do to change, Jesus? What do I need to do to, to put all my trust in you so I don't worry about physical things or even spiritual things? So I'm resting in you, holy and committed in you. It's that same thing, I think, here. And what, what it all boils down to for me is the end of this chapter here in verse 58. I like verse 58 as, again, he's really he's throwing them red meat here. Obviously, because they, they're, they're not understanding how in the world he could see Abraham because he's not 50 years old, not even 50 years old. How, how in the world did you see Abraham? Before Abraham was born, I am. I love the way he expresses that. He's saying he's expressing eternal existence in the present time. He's not talking about past He's not talking about future. He's saying right now, the present time. Because time for deities like Jesus Christ has no bearing. I mean, he had some time in the body here, but he has always been. He always shall be. So when he's saying, I am, he's saying, eternally I have existed. Eternally I will exist. I am always going to be with you. I've always been around. I'm always going to be with you. The, the, the cure for worry back in Psalm 46, the cure for worry here, no matter what you're worried about, whether it's your faith or your, 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 your life or physical things, is to remember that before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is always with us. He's always been and he always will be. That, that eternal existence, he will always be present with me. When I begin to worry, where do I turn? To Jesus. When I begin to fret about my finances or whatever in my life, where do I turn? To Jesus. Now he's, uh, like, like Bill made a caveat about, about worry this morning. I, I don't think that every single thing is going to be covered by just turning to Jesus. You, you might actually have to get off your butt and go get a job if you want money. You can't just be supported by somebody else. Well, you could, I mean... I wouldn't mind being supported by my... Yeah, it sounds great. I wouldn't mind. If anybody wants to support me for the rest of my life, let me know. But yeah. The, the, the whole thing is here is, is where we put our faith and our trust and our hope. Where do you put your faith, your trust, and your hope? In the one who's I am. In the one who has always been, always will be. It's presently 
here because for me, my life is linear. I have a distinct start and a some distinct end. But for him, he's always been and always shall be. In fact, if you go back to Psalm 46, I think the very center of that, that chapter echoes what Jesus says in, in a little different way, but sort of echoes what Jesus says at the end of John 8 when he says, I've always been, I'm always around, and I'll always be with you. In verse 6, this, for me, when I, when I looked at, the, at this that thing, it all kind of culminated in verse 6, where you have two opposing things. The nations are making an uproar, right? The kingdom's tottered. But what happens when God raised his voice? The earth melted. When God speaks, things happen. When God says, let there be light, there's light. He spoke from Genesis chapter 1 and he speaks all the way to the end of Revelation. He's still speaking today through his word. When God speaks, things happen. When we remember the words that he speaks, things can happen in our lives. When Jesus says, I am, he's always been, he always will be. He's present with us now, he'll be with us forever. It's that faith, that hope and trust that eliminates my worry because I have Jesus. Because I have the God who says, let there be light, and there was light. I have the God that says all of these things in the Bible and they come to pass. I have the God that says, I promise this, and I believe him. That's where 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 comes in too, right? Cast all your anxiety on him. Casting all of them, all of your anxiety... Because He cares for you. He loves you. Amen. Cast all of your anxiety on Him. All cares. And we, we looked at Matthew 6 this morning in class too. And Matthew 6, 25 through 34, there at the end of the chapter that He says, you know, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has what? Enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about you know, Take care of today. And, and God will take care of you if, if He takes care of these little things down here on the earth. I mean, it, it is talking about worry about material things here. But he's saying, look, if, if he takes care of you in these, in these little material things, then he's going to take care of you in the big way too. And that's I think it, it's from material to cast all your anxiety on him. Give it all to him. No matter what the problem is, give it to him. He cares about every single problem that we have. But I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like you shouldn't go to a doctor if you need to go to a doctor or a counselor if you need to go to a counselor. Those, those things are good things for us to, to use. And I don't think we can all avoid all those things. You, we might have to lean on each other as a family and help each other out through these things. Like Galatians talks about, when you can't carry that load, when it's too hard for you to bear, what happens? Your brothers and your sisters come and help you, help you carry. And that fulfills the law of Christ. I mean, it, there, there's... There's built-in things that God has built in into in the church itself, to the body itself. But then we also have things like doctors and, and counselors that we can lean on and help. But the big worries for me, like does he love me? Yeah, he loves me. Do I love him enough? I could probably love him a lot more. But that's for me to work out here. 
I get to work that out. But I don't, in that, in that working out, whether or not he loves me or whether I love him enough, in all of that working out, I don't have to worry about who has me. Because if Jesus is true, then when he says, I've got you in my hand, and nobody can snatch you out of my hand, then I believe that. Even when I feel the opposite, I believe it. I don't have to worry about who has me. I don't have to worry about where my life will end up, whether here or eternally. I know where I'm going to be because of the promises that God made. Even when I don't feel like it, I know where I'm going to be. I know who has me in his hand. I know who loves and cares for me. I know who will bring me home one day. That's Jesus Christ himself coming down and getting us. And I know who's confessing me before the Father because I've confessed him before men. And all the worry that I could worry and all the things that I could worry about, the big questions are answered. Who has me? Who has you? That might be a weird question. Who has It sounds weird. Who has you? Anybody? Jesus. Yeah. Only a couple of people in here are uh, got Jesus, apparently. <laughs> Who has you? Jesus. A couple more people now. Okay. All right. If you don't want to play along, that's fine. Jesus. Jesus has probably got you too, even though you're quiet. Jesus has us. So no matter what we go through, even when it seems like it's, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, Jesus has us. Jesus has you. Rest in Him. Cast all your anxiety on Him. Cast your worry on Him. Cast all of that on Him. Avail yourself to the love of the family and to other means if necessary to help you understand that Jesus has you. Don't forget that God loves you. And work on your love for God. But never forget that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who came and died for our sins, who died and bled for our sins and asks us to commit our lives to Him, has us in His hand. We don't have to worry about the big picture ticket items. And in turn, we really don't have to worry about the small things either. Because God will work them out. God will help us out. Don't worry about anything this week. Uh, that's probably a tall order. But when you do worry this week, when, when that worry kind of creeps in, if it's, if it's worry about a job or something, try to practice casting that anxiety on Jesus. Cast that anxiety on God. Practice casting and changing that worry into, I know who has me. And because I know who has me, I can face this problem. Do that this week as we stand and as we sing.